Good morning, everyone. Thank you for attending the opening session, 7 a.m. in Las Vegas post-Labor Day for Pain Week, course code INT01. Um, as a few matters of administrative housekeeping, if you would, please silence your cell phones or mobile devices out of respect for the speaker. Also, we are recording this session, so we will have a Q&A at the end. Please raise your hands and wait until I run you a microphone before asking your question. And then lastly, if you have not, please download the Pain Week app. Uh, we welcome any feedback you may have on this presentation. So with that said, this is Electroceuticals, the Future of Interventional Pain Management. Our distinguished speaker today is Dr. Sean Lee, who's the Regional Medical Director at Premier Pain Centers at the affiliate of National Spine and Pain Centers in New Jersey. He also serves as a consultant and independent contractor for many organizations, including Boston Scientific, um, Veritex, and Medtronic. So with that said, please welcome Dr. Sean Lee. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Um, I, I would have to say, to, to be here at 7 a.m., no matter what time zone you came from in Las Vegas, I, I truly appreciate the fact that you're here. Um, I'm running about a solid 5 out of 10 pain score this morning um, after having to redo these slides because of the format. But um, again, so today I'm going to talk to you about, about a subject that's very, very dear to my heart, which is um, anything that has to do with electricity that can treat pain, um, and mainly electroceuticals, and how something that's very, very ancient uh, has become new again, and something that we look forward to in the next generation of, of pain care. So here are my disclosures. Yes, I, I work in a bit of um, industry because I'm interested in, in neuromodulation um, as a physician in, in private. This allows me to um, uh, continue my, my research um, while after, after fellowship. And with that note, I'm very delighted to have my uh, fellowship classmate, Dr. Bochos, in the audience. So please don't heckle me if you find anything that's not, 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 not perfect. Uh, so today we're going to talk about electroceuticals. We're going to talk about how um, it goes back into the ancient times and how it applies in modern day. And we're going to talk about how it can affect uh, what we're doing today, uh, how it can supplement and sometimes even uh, uh, provide as an alternative to some of the medications uh, such as opioids. Uh, talk about some of the emerging concepts that, that are really exciting that's coming uh, into market within the next 5, 10 years. And what's beyond so these are the learning objectives. I kind of just basically reviewed that already. Uh, we, we want to talk about how electricity um, plays as a role in, in treatment of pain and, and chronic pain conditions. Uh, what, what are the newer technologies that are available? Maybe go through some of the novel frequencies, targets, uh, and, and waveforms that are available out there, and some emerging concepts. So what are electroceuticals? Basically anything that targets some part of the body using electricity to alter, modulate, uh, change the, the way our, our nervous system behaves, and, and to alter disease states. This will be really interesting in the future where rather than targeting just the, the symptom of pain, we can actually target uh, disease states. Uh, this, is, this industry is predicted to be in the billions uh, by 25. Probably also marijuana, but that's another subject. You guys can smell it on the streets here. So what are the leading applications? So we all know uh, in cardiology, the use of pacemakers, the use of uh, in the picture. Sorry, I can't really make this bend. I wish I could. Um, this is the original pacemaker. Uh, uh, developed this uh, with Medtronic, and it saved hundreds and thousands of lives. 
And on the right, you'll see that uh, it's been miniaturized, just like everything else in, in today's world. Test, test. So, in terms of audiology, we all know about cochlear implants. Um, one of the newer technologies I'm going to talk about actually is, is, is developed by somebody who's in uh, that science. Neurosurgery, deep brain stimulation, uh, vagal nerve stimulators, which I'm going to talk about, and something that's true to my heart, which is spinal cord stimulation in all forms of neuromodulation. So let's go way back into where this all began. So in ancient times, um, if you look at on, on the left, uh, this was a version of what they call a Baghdad battery. Essentially, you take a clay plot, you line it with some form of metal, copper, and you put some type of conductive material um, in it, uh, vinegar, and you put a, another conductive material inside of it, and you generate a current. Uh, and that current was often used to treat some form of ailment, a lot of times things like headaches and chronic pain. Uh, and the more notable things, uh, use of electrified animals, uh, specifically torpedo fish that carried a charge. Uh, back, in, back in the um, days of the, 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 the Romans, uh, they used to do this to, to patients with, with chronic pain states. Uh, most, most notable, most famous, uh, this doctor named Scribonius Largus. He was the court physician to the uh, Emperor Claudius, uh, which treated uh, things uh, such as uh, migraine headaches. Other examples of um, electricity used in ancient civilization. So this is a, a, a pallet from King Neymar. Uh, this was to commemorate the, the, the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt. But if you look at right on top, uh, apologize for not pointing, right here is an inscription of a, of a Nile catfish that's also electrified. So this was very, very uh, dear to... to to the Egyptians because it carried medicinal value. In fact, you can find uh, mummified catfish uh, for that matter. So we're going to talk about how this evolved. So just like man, and I would actually add my son at the other end of the thing with his iPad all day long uh, with same addictive behavior as we could see in other medications. But the, the use of electroceuticals and neuromodulation devices have evolved over the years. Uh, originally, these devices were big and clunky, uh, had uh, transceivers sitting in the body with, um, with batteries sitting on the outside of the body with coils and so forth, and they got smaller with better battery technology, uh, rechargeable technology, and then all of a sudden, we changed the way we uh, used the number of contacts. The contacts in terms of uh, electrodes became uh, from 2 to 4 to, to 8, 16, uh, and 32, and, and, and so forth. And then things changed a little bit. In the last five years, um, a new wave of, of technology came out based on data. Uh, there was better uh, evidence showing that this stuff really works um, and utilizing better waveforms and, and targets, and we're going to talk about that. Can't talk about neuromodulation and electroceuticals without going back to the grandfathers. In fact, even before these guys, does anybody know who the real grandfather of neuromodulation in America is? It's actually Benjamin Franklin. He, he, he was able to um, use charge uh, in the form of uh, uh, either uh, by the lightning storm or in, in, in jars to, to treat uh, ail, uh, ailments. So these two guys, uh, Wal and Melzak, um, came out with a schematic 
of how we may be able to treat pain by blocking off some larger fibers that are sensory. So by closing off a gate uh, to the uh, smaller uh, non-myelinated C fibers, uh, you can block these pain signals and sometimes alter the way uh, the interneurons work uh, and inhibit uh, this pathway. Just only a year after this was, was developed, um, in fact, 51 years ago, uh, we celebrated the, the first use of neuromodulation when Norm Shealy put this in somebody who was suffering from chronic, intractable, actually terminal cancer uh, pain uh, at, at the University of Wisconsin. Moving forward, uh, there were contemporaries uh, such as Kemmler, North, and Kumar who, who conducted a large series of uh, scientific uh, trials that showed that neuromodulation was effective in treating chronic pain. Uh, the most notable, um, Dr. North at, at Hopkins uh, was the one that did the study on whether someone should have a repeat operation in the back. So he took a group of people that already had a lumbar spine operation and said, well, you have two choices. Do you want to have a second operation or do you want to have something like this, uh, a device put in your back? This was quite ingenious at the time because uh, they were allowed to cross over. So uh, the people who went on to um, having a neuromodulator, a spinal cord stimulator put in, uh, 50, greater than 50% of them uh, obtained pain relief, uh, while the patients who got second operation, uh, a, a a large portion of them ended up having a spinal cord stimulator placed, which means they crossed over and still, developed, and still obtained pain relief. So this was the initial um, modern-day evidence showing that this may be uh, an alternative to getting more surgery in your back, an alternative to um, other options for pain relief. So today, some of the known uh, indications for, for spinal cord stimulation or neuromodulation uh, common things like uh, neuropathic pain of the, the, the upper limb or the lower limb or the trunk, lower back, um, failed back surgery syndrome or post-laminectomy syndrome we're quite well uh, familiar with, and things like uh, complex regional pain syndrome or RSD, um, whichever you, you like to use. Other things that are also on the list, um, peripheral vascular disease is, is probably more used in, in, in Europe. Uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy. This is something that I had a, a recent encounter with because I, I did some of the research in terms of diabetic uh, and, and peripheral neuropathy showing that uh, there's some early evidence that spinal cord stimulation uh, may, may be very effective. Uh, other things like migraine headaches, we're going to talk about vagal nerve stimulation, uh, which is quite exciting in, in, in the world of chronic pain. So from a schematic uh, view, you can essentially target the whole nervous system using some form of electricity, all the way from the cortex down to the peripheries in the peripheral uh, nerve, and we'll touch upon that as well. Um, things that are common in, in my everyday world are things like spinal cord stimulation or dorsal column stimulation. Uh, th that, that term dorsal column may change because of the, the way we think um, neuromodulation is, is really happening on a mechanistic level. So um, I, I still um, use that interchangeably with spinal cord stimulation. Uh, things like dorsal root ganglion stimulation has become um, quite a new um, option for us because it can be very specific in the way it can target certain areas of the body, and we'll touch upon that in, in a minute. So everybody knows about this. This was essentially uh, initially developed by the, the World Health Organization to figure out how we can treat in a stepwise fashion in patients with cancer. But I, I always use this to remind us that this, this is not a, a permanent thing. It changes. So we now know that uh, things like neuromodulation and, and intrathecal uh, therapy uh, may be th thought of uh, before other things, such as uh, more invasive spinal operations and so forth. So 
spinal cord stimulation, there are a variety of them. There's about five companies that are commercially available now. Um, they all come with a, a battery we, we refer to as a can. Uh, they all come with wires, uh, leads that somehow conduct the electricity into the, to, to the canal, uh, into the spine. They can be in a form of a, of a wire or a paddle that's uh, surgically implanted, and they all have some form of a remote where it's an interface device. Uh, sometimes that's actually more important than you think. So as an aside, um, if you're someone who suffers from chronic pain, uh, the last thing you want to know uh, and tell everybody in the room is that I have chronic pain. So um, the, the better you can make these devices that are um, less, less obvious, um, more concealed, uh, integrated into a current you know, technology like our smartphones, uh, better it is for the whole sort of experience and in, 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 in sort of the, 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 the behavior part of pain. So um, if you have chronic pain, no one wants to, 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 to be uh, singled out as somebody who's different. So um, for all those uh, who, who treat pain patients, uh, there's an emotional aspect to pain as well. So traditional spinal cord stimulation involves putting some wires in the dorsal column, targeting the dorsal column fibers, which are carrying these large A-beta fibers uh, that, that, that are for sensory. So this is the best way to explain as, you know, we're all, when we're children, we cut ourselves, we, 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 we hurt ourselves, and our moms rubbed our arm um, just proximal to that area, and it felt better because we're essentially distracting uh, the pain symptoms. This is very similar. So you, you, you create a, a buzzing or a, a pleasant paresthesia sensation over the area where you have pain uh, to hope, hope that you would, um, eliminate or modulate that pain uh, source. And essentially, you generate this paresthesia. How do you do that? Well, you target um, by mapping out where uh, the paresthesia uh, during a stimul stimulation trial in comparison to where the patient is having pain. So you wake the patients up uh, in the middle of the trial and say, well, uh, does this buzzing cover where you hurt? And, and we've done that for many years, and sometimes you can get quite frustrating because uh, when you're trying to cover the back, you get the buzzing in the leg. When you're trying to cover the leg, you get buzzing in the back because that anatomy is not perfect. Uh, it's, 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 it's a dynamic, uh, very individualized um, uh, paresthesia map. Why did we do this? Well, this was based on another study by Dr. North at, at Hopkins saying that uh, the, the more likely you're able to cover the area of pain, uh, the higher chance you have to, to treat that pain. So this pushed us into better lead development, advanced programming techniques, using uh, more wires, more contacts to drive that electricity uh, down into the deeper parts of the, uh, the cord to target certain types of pain fibers, uh, especially the ones that cover our back, which was uh, traditionally harder to, to, to treat. So everybody got a trial, which um, in, 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 in an operating room or procedure room, that meant uh, having some sort of a sedation or a light uh, sedation or anesthetic uh, you put these wires percutaneously with needles, uh, and then you leave them there for a week or so uh, with, with a dressing. Patients can't shower, uh, and, and they come back to the office saying, well, did you have pain relief? Did, did you have improvement of your function? And we discussed whether or not this was a, a good um, option for them in terms of long-term implantation. And, and placement of leads also depended on where their uh, paresthesia mapping uh, ended up. Well, on came a renaissance of, of, of neuromodulation. The top part, uh, we all know. The bottom one, this is an undoctored picture of one of my dear friends, Jason Pope, at uh, one of our meetings. Uh, it's quite scary, and, and I always use this picture saying that this might be a sign of what's to come. So 
some of the innovations, well, we've got adaptive stim, uh, we've got MRI compatibility, uh, we've got novel waveforms, targets, uh, and then things that are not available in the market yet, such as closed loop, and some things that are just come to the market, like vagal nerve stimulation. So adaptive stim, this has been around for a while now. Uh, th this was uh, developed by one of the large neuromodulation or neural, um, uh, spinal cord stimulator companies. Uh, what was this? Uh, to, 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 it was to address the fact that stimulation, because of paresthesia-based stimulation, uh, was, was variable. So as patients moved, um, they, they, they saw a drastic change in the stimulation pattern. So it wasn't pleasant for somebody to get up and all of a sudden get a jolt of, of, of zapping down their leg. Uh, this is also the reason why you, you were not supposed to drive with these devices on. So um, Schultz um, in, in Minnesota uh, looked at patients who had this technology and showed that uh, these patients had less daily adjustments of their remote. Remember I told you, uh, the less people want to touch these things, uh, the better off they're able to, 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 to go about their lives. But some of these patients are so attached to these remotes, it seems like that becomes more of a, of a to-do than, than their original pain symptom. So this study uh, was able to show that adaptive stim was helpful and the industry moved towards um, somehow figuring out a way to, to have a better interface or better experience with stimulation. So the details of the, the study is less important than, than showing uh, what are the challenges in terms of neuromodulation. Well, patients didn't like the fact that their, uh, the, the, the buzzing and tingling changed when they moved and sometimes was ineffective because uh, it wasn't constantly treating where they're having pain. So this is a great um, sort of video or cartoon showing why that happens. Well, our spinal cord is sitting in a, in a tank of fluid, in a column of fluid, and it moves. It moves as we change positions, um, and you can see how when the position changed, the, the distance between the wires and the spinal cord changed, and therefore the amount of dose or electricity went to the spinal cord changed. So how did this company go around this? Well, they developed an accelerometer just like in your phone, uh, knowing when the patient sit, sat down, lay down, and they pre-programmed these uh, fixed stimulation patterns uh, to these positions, allowing us to, to overcome some of those challenges. Well, things really evolved in the last five, five years or so uh, by targeting the dorsal root ganglion. So the dorsal root ganglion is where the cell bodies of, of these, these nerves lie. And, and the behavior is a little different when you can target the, those, those, those uh, specific uh, DRGs. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about vagal stimulation. We're going to talk about um, peripheral nerve stimulation and some of the other uh, current things that are going on, like multifidus stimulation. So we move into an era where uh, paresthesia may not be necessary. So there's a new concept called paresthesia-free stimulation. Initially, it was developed as high density uh, by upping the frequency slightly uh, and, and, and using uh, sub-perceptual stimulation. High frequency using really high frequencies uh, at beyond perceptual threshold, thresholds or altering the way uh, these, these waveforms happen, such as burst. Uh, you, you make these, these waveforms in packets of five pulses in, in 500 hertz uh, frequencies in 40-second intervals. Uh, this was to kind of create the way our own brain functions and, and hopefully use a different pathway in blocking pain. So burst waveform, this, this was developed by, by De Ritter in New Zealand. Um, he thought that by mimicking some of the, 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 the way our brain uh, signals, uh, we may be able to target some of the, 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 the other pathways of pain, such as the, the medial descending pathway. So uh, there is some early evidence showing that uh, 
this is able to uh, affect or, or alter the effective pathway of pain. So patients may uh, not feel the, the, the suffering aspect of pain. So not only it treats their, 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 uh, the neuropathic pain, but it can affect the way they, they think about their pain. Uh, so they even may have pain, but it doesn't affect them as much, and they can go about their business, so the functional aspect. High frequency, this came about three years ago. Uh, this was originally developed uh, in, in, in the Mayo Clinic, and it went out to, to the West Coast to develop as any other technology in Silicon Valley. Uh, went over to Europe to, to, to get approved, and it came back to this country. So this was the, 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 the pivotal um, article that got high-frequency stimulation approved in this country. And it showed that it was uh, more effective and, and possibly superior to the current uh, standard frequency stimulators. Uh, what's powerful about this study is it revalidated some of the older studies that we had. It showed that spinal cord stimulation works. Uh, traditional spinal cord stimulation works uh, about 50% of the time, but this happened to work a little bit better, uh, something that I incorporate into my practice as well. What's really interesting out of this study is that, remember I told you about the early North studies where paresthesia was important for pain relief? Well, since this was non-paresthesia, they did a little study in the patients in this group. They said, well, why don't you paint out all the areas where you have pain, and then we're going to de decrease your frequencies, and let's see where your buzzing is. And it turned out it was not related at all. So patients would report that their pain is in the right, left leg, and their buzzing and tingling, even though it helped them at high frequencies, would be somewhere else. So this kind of pushed us into the theory world where stimulation may be happening at a different mechanistic level. Uh, and... And to say that, they have models and rat models showing that that might be the case. So rather than targeting the dorsal columns as we talked about, uh, the high frequencies might be targeting uh, the, the actual uh, dorsal horn on uh, a laminar level. Um, and from this, uh, this is an early rat model showing... Um, this is an early rat model showing how um, high frequency can affect wind-up. So wind-up is, is a model where we use for chronic pain. Uh, if you subject uh, an animal to, 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 a, to a stimulus, uh, you'll see a wind-up phenomenon uh, on, on, the, on the left panel. See, these are the signals that they're capturing from a single uh, uh, nerve fiber. And after applying high frequency, you see that the wind-up is, is significantly reduced showing that there may be something mechanistically different in, in high frequency compared to, to traditional frequency. Again, this is very early uh, in, in animal models and not in humans. Some of the other potential targets for, for, for high frequency spinal cord stimulation, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be involved in some of this research. Uh, as you see, it goes beyond just um, standard back and leg pain. Uh, we're talking about high frequency uh, affecting uh, patients with uh, peripheral di diabetic neuropathy. We're talking about uh, post-surgical pain. We're talking about non-surgical back pain and, and other chronic uh, pain states. I mentioned to you about dorsal root ganglion uh, stimulation. Well, here's an example of a wire being put or draped right over the dorsal root ganglion. And you can do that by um, maneuvering a wire out of the foramen uh, into and over the, the dorsal root ganglion. Uh, why do you want to do that? Uh, well, the, the, the specificity is much different. So to be able to target a specific dermatome uh, allows a pain physician like me to target, say, your left foot rather than your right foot. Uh, we can be even as specific as targeting your, your right toe if we wanted to. So things like uh, CRPS um, has um, uh, been better targeted and treated with this technology. 
and I was one of the investigators on this, um, on this study where uh, we showed that spinal cord stimulation compared to dorsal reganglion stimulation, DRG was a lot more specific and potentially um, uh, superior. So some of the advantages um, on, on, the, on the right, uh, you see uh, some of the x-ray images of dorsal reganglion leads covering, uh, in this particular case, uh, the left L5 and the L4 uh, DRGs allows us to use much lower power settings because we're directly over the uh, cell bodies of these nerves and we're able to be much more specific. And this also can be sub-threshold, meaning that patients don't have to feel buzzing or tingling or paresthesias that may, may not be pleasant. So with sort of a re renaissance of spinal cord stimulation and neuromodulation came new studies. Some th these are some of the landmark uh, trials that um, happened within the last uh, five, five years or five, ten years or so. The accurate trial was the DRG study. Sunburst trial was the trial that showed um, some benefits of uh, burst technology. Uh, the Senza trial was the high frequency uh, pivotal trial. The accelerated trial is, is another ongoing trial looking at high frequency. Uh, and the Evoke trial is something we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, looking at closed loop technology. This is an ongoing trial uh, currently and hasn't been reported the, the data yet. In the periphery, we talked about other targets. Well, we could target nerves in the periphery. So by using a miniaturized uh, lead or wire, I can target specific peripheral nerves, such as the, the femoral nerve or the sciatic nerve for patients with uh, post-amputation pain. Uh, this is an exciting field because uh, I think peripheral nerve stimulation has become the next sort of resurgence of things because the, the, the technology has gotten better. Um, for the last 10 years, we used spinal cord stimulator technology-based tools to treat a problem that was harder to do because um, wires just not meant for the periphery. But newer technologies are available, materials are available to allow us to use much smaller wires, smaller devices, and cheaper uh, equipment to be able to treat other pain conditions such as post-amputation pain. So, so far, uh, there's uh, two FDA-approved devices on the market, all using very small, miniaturized. Some are uh, temporary, so you can put a wire in for about six weeks and take it out. Uh, there have been zero reported infections because if you look at this wire under the microscope, it looks like a telephone coil, and our, our tissues kind of ingrow into that. Um, and when, when six weeks is up, we just pull it right out. And these are often placed uh, ultras uh, under ultrasound uh, percutaneously, so uh, potentially someone could do this in the office or in the post-operative setting to treat acute and chronic pain. Multifidus stimula stimulation. So the multifidus muscle has been implicated in, in stabilizing the, ax, the, the lumbar axis. So in patients with either previous surgery, uh, weakness of, of the lower back, uh, we can stimulate the multifidus muscle similar to, to spinal cord stimulation. And this study was just recently published uh, showing efficacy uh, for, for chronic low back pain. So let's, let's look into what's in the future. What's scary about this picture is that already happened, by the way. Um, if anybody's old, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm old, so uh, that we already went to the future according to the movie, and all the things that happened essentially happened. Um, if, if you want to see those shoes, uh, those, those uh, self-tying shoes, they're, they're around the corner in, in, in the store here. Uh, it's about $10,000, I think. So we talked about stimulation in terms of open loop. Well, what does that mean, open loop? Well, that means I stimulate somebody, one of my patients, and say, well, where do you feel the buzzing? They say, well, I feel the buzzing in my back and my leg. Well, does it help you with pain? Kind of. Well, I, I, I 
fix the programming a little bit, I do some reprogramming, and I ask the patient again, well, do you feel better? So it happens on a, an open system where my patient is the one that's giving me feedback, saying what's happening in terms of is your, is your pain better, is it, is it worse? Uh, it's very subjective, and it's tedious. This is also challenged by what we talked about, positionality. So every time the patient moved, or coughed, sneezed, laughed, the stimulation changed, and the therapy changed. Well, what's closed loop? Well, closed loop is possibly looking at the spinal cord, and without the patient telling me, I can tell what their spinal cord is doing in response to the stimulation. And this happens on a real-time basis. So someone has smart, been smart enough to, to develop and, and, and look into or listen in onto the spinal cord. Remember I told you about some of the cochlear technology? Well, John Parker in Australia, who's also an electrophysicist, uh, was, 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 was doing cochlear technology. So wouldn't it be great if I could listen in on what the spinal cord is doing? So there's these things called evoked compound action potential. Essentially, the electronic signal, uh, call it the, the EKG of your spinal cord, if you will, uh, that we can listen in onto. And as we're stimulating the cord, we may be able to give a little bit of hint on what the cord is doing and reprogram or adapt our stimulation uh, to treat the patients with chronic pain. So this was an initial study showing that uh, if we can augment or maximize on the ECAP signal uh, when we're stimulating the patient, we can potentially maximize on their pain relief in terms of spinal cord stimulation. So this is a cartoon of what this thing is actually doing. So when, when we're stimulating the cord, uh, that's the red line there, we're listening in on the cord from the same wire. And the signal that the cord or the signature that the cord is giving off, we can actually listen in on and maximize it by whether position or uh, location or the patient's pain pathology. Uh, and alter that based upon the patient's position, uh, whether they're, they're smiling or laughing or coughing. Why do we want to do this? Well, think of a dose-response curve. So when we treat patients with medications, uh, for example, antibiotics, the best way I can uh, give an example is we check vancal troughs and, and peaks to make sure that they're always in a therapeutic window. Wouldn't it be great if we can make sure that somebody's getting electricity in the, in, in the optimal therapeutic window? So this is what ECAP measurement is, is hoping to do. So the early studies show that if we can maximize on the ECAP signal, we can potentially maximize on their pain relief. So the clinical application of a feedback loop essentially is having something that's not too hot, not too cold, not just right. Um, and it's been done, and it can be done on a real-time basis. Uh, and it can make the paresthesia experience uh, less intrusive uh, and allow the patients to stay in, in, in a narrow therapeutic window. And this is done without any type of uh, adjustments from the patient. This is happening real-time in the background. So if you look at this is, the, this is an early um, sort of um, uh, clinical study we did in this country um, called pa Panorama where we, we looked in on some patients' cords during their stimulation trial. So we took patients who were going, undergoing regular spinal cord stimulation trial. After they finished the trial, I unhook, unhooked their, their external device and I attached a newer device that was looking in on these ECAP signals. And we found that a lot of patients were being overstimulated. So position, adjustments, movement, they were overstimulated. And then a lot of patients were understimulated because uh, they turned down their devices to allow them to not get the buzzing or jolt, uh, not get the jolt down their leg. So essentially, 
a large portion of patients were not in the optimal therapeutic window. By applying this closed-loop technology, we were able to keep them in a, in a therapeutic window. So this is a, 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 this is a video, as you know, before that. I'm going to blast through this a little bit because I want to be able to make, make time and, and show some of the other stuff. This is an early study out of Australia, um, Russo, uh, using this technology, showing that it could potentially uh, be very effective compared to current standard spinal cord stimulation um, uh, options. But I wanted to showcase this. Is He was able to show that you can keep 93% of the time a patient in their therapeutic window, And this is a, another subset of patients. These are individual patients. But what's remarkable is that the pain relief compared to um, traditional stimulation was very significant, going from pain scores of 8s to 1s and 2s. But what I find more remarkable is that um, we're moving beyond just talking about pain scores. We want to know about function. We want to know about sleep. We want to know about opioid intake. So he was able to show all these um, these patients showed a 50% reduction in their opioids. Uh, patients had improved sleep and overall uh, functional improvement in terms of satisfaction. So again, this is a, not an FDA-approved uh, device. Uh, the study is still ongoing, and I think the initial re results will be announced uh, early next year. Vagal nerve stimulation. This is. Um, also something that I'm in, quite intrigued about. Um, traditional vagal nerve stimulators have been around to treat things like uh, seizures, fibromyalgia, chronic pain. But external vagal nerve stimulation has only been around uh, for about a year. It's been recently approved to, for the treatment of, of migraine and cluster headaches. The initial data from implantable devices showed that uh, this was quite effective for patients with headaches, so uh, it was evolved into an external device. There's something unique about the vagus nerve. I'm not going to go through an anatomy lesson here, but essentially it's, it's the longest nerve. It has other functions than just um, uh, the, the usual sensory and motor functions, uh, but it also has um, a regulatory, has an endocrine function as well. It, it, it has a homeostatic uh, function. Um, it, can, it can have roles in autonomic functions such as heart rate, blood pressure, uh, as well as in, in, in inflammation. So this is quite interesting showing that uh, the pathways and and how the vagus nerve affects all of our systems can play a role in the treatment of pain and other disease states. So here are the early um, historical aspects of vagal nerve stimulation. It was approved for uh, refractory epilepsy back in the 90s. Uh, in, in 2005, it was used for, for depression, and, and more recently it was approved for headaches and um, uh, both migraine and cluster headaches. I'm going to go through this a little bit. But what are the potential targets for, for, for vagal nerve stimulation? Because the vagus nerve is effect, uh, has an effect in, in homeostatic functions, uh, possibly it can have an effect in, 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 in things like um, Alzheimer's, um, stroke, um, inflammatory diseases such as um, uh, di uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, and, and inflammatory bowel disease. So this is an example of an implanted device where you have to isolate the vagus nerve within the uh, carotid sheath and place this coil over uh, this nerve. So it's a, it's a neurosurgical procedure uh, compared to uh, the transcutaneous version where you put this device that looks like almost like our old pagers. You put it right over your neck, and it can target the vagus nerve. 
So some of the future targets uh, we talked about earlier. So there, there are studies, animal models, where the, the vagus nerve stimulation can affect the way our inflammation works. So this is an example of suppression of TNF-alpha um, with the use of vagal nerve stimulation. In terms of uh, another uh, animal model, uh, histamine release, so looking at uh, airway pressures, we know that when, when, when in terms of asthma, um, when we subject the, the animal to, to histamine release, the airway pressures go up, but if you treat it with uh, vagal nerve stimulation, uh, it, it mitigates or augments. In fact, the, the transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation was initially invented uh, because um, one of my mentors is actually one of the inventors with this. He wanted to, to somehow figure a way to treat his son's peanut allergy. So when, when his son went into anaphylaxis, there's got to be a diff, better way to, to stick him with, a, with, with an EpiPen. So um, even though it's not approved for that, but that was the original uh, thought process why this was developed. Uh, this is an example of, uh, of affecting uh, the, 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 the forced expiratory volume uh, in, in an animal with vagal nerve stimulation. So because of all the initial um, side effects, essentially, from implanted vagal nerve stimulators, uh, this is why we developed into transcutaneous and other targets for vagal nerve stimulation. Why is headache such an important thing in cro treating chronic pain? Well, it has a huge societal impact. Uh, it has a, a large uh, prevalence. Uh, almost 30 mi million Americans are affected. It has a large 3 to 1 uh, female to male ratio. Uh, it has a high impact onto uh, function lost and, and lost productivity. These are the research studies that allowed this device to be uh, made available. This was the initial ACT-1 study that was done in Europe. Uh, this was the ACT-2 study that was done in this country. They're all randomized controlled trials uh, showing the efficacy of vagal nerve stimulation uh, for migraine headache. Oh, sorry, sorry, cluster headaches. That was the ACT study. So this was the Presto study that got this device approved for uh, migraine headaches, and this was done in, in, in Europe. Some of the newer things that are going to be um, coming up, uh, rheumatologic diseases, uh, the ability to, to, to suppress um, inflammatory biomarkers with vagal nerve stimulation has shown some, some, some excitement. Uh, something to lo look for in the future. For stroke, uh, we know that um, the ischemic injury causes an inflammatory response, but if you can mitigate that ischemic injury um, by decreasing the inflammatory response uh, through other forms of, 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 of stimulation, such as vagal nerve stimulation. Inflammatory bowel disease, this is a, a small study, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, this is another tough problem to treat in the world of chronic pain. So we've kind of gone through the past, the current, the future. And to put it all together, if you look at this diagram, there's so many potential targets for, for electricity. So what's something that's old as, as the ancient times, we now have available to us that's not a medication, that's not an opioid, uh, and it's electricity. And pain is just a tip of the iceberg. You see all these other disease states that are potential targets for electricity. I think uh, we're, we're just about coming into another round of renaissance for, 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 for neuromodulation in, in electroceuticals. So in, in the world of uh, an epidemic of opioids, there are unmet treatment needs. 
Um, there's health economics that play into this, but with, with innovation and better battery technology, better materials, um, I think there's, uh, there's a bright future for, for um, electroceuticals and neuromodulation technology. So with that, I'm going to say thank you, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Yeah. Um, I work with patients who are coming off of opiates and have chronic pain. Do you see a role for electroceuticals before they go on opiates as well as when they're coming off of opiates for effectively treating their pain? I think that's both. So I'm going to give you sort of real scenarios in everyday life. Uh, I work with a lot of um, frontline pain practitioners who treat patients who are on opioids or were on opioids, um, I think it, it, it falls between the continuum of pain treatment. Um, when patients are on too much opioids or an inappropriate amount of opioids, I think there are some, some studies that show um, neuromodulation doesn't work as well. So it's got to be a, a, a team, team approach where patients have, have, have to see uh, a neuropsychologist uh, to, to set the appropriate expectations. Uh, my practice, I like to set goals. So uh, rather than saying you're, you're on this amount of medications, uh, we're not going to do this right now. We're going to try to, to wean you to appropriate doses, try this stimulation. If it works, we're going to work towards maybe even lesser doses. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit you know, uh, um, naive uh, of, of most pain pr uh, practitioners say, well, I'm going to get you off of your opioids altogether. Uh, what I like to do is get off somebody who's on um, continuous high-dose opioids to maybe one or two, say, Vicodins uh, every week or so. So that's a, that's a, that's a realistic goal. Um, I think patients who suffer from chronic pain for, for years um, do still need some sort of emergency uh, pain relief. Uh, I think opioids are still a, a potential good choice. We just have to use it more responsibly. So in your question is absolutely. Um, there are some newer devices that, that claim that they can help with opioid withdrawal, um, I think the studies are, are yet to be determined on that. Uh, but in terms of neuromodulation things that I do in spinal cord stimulation, peripheral nerve stimulation, those can all uh, be utilized to help patients uh, with pain and to hopefully supplement their need for, for opioids and uh, offer them an alternative. Go ahead. You go ahead. I'll repeat it. So the question was, um, in specific to vagal nerve stimulation, of the, 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 the side effects of potentially stimulating other targets that are not intended and in creating some side effects in, in sometimes uh, less than ideal situations. So yeah, the, the originally the, the vagal nerve stimulators were not used on the left because they're concerned about affecting the cardiac pacers, they're affecting the, the respiratory centers. But through both animal and in human uh, studies, uh, that wasn't shown to be the case because it has to do with the, the amount of dosing of uh, electricity that was, was, was delivered. 
that's, this was the transcutaneous uh, uh, application. So right now, the transcutaneous application is only approved for, for cluster and migraine headaches in this country. And the, the particular device we're talking about um, hasn't shown any uh, cardiac or respiratory side effects. Um, yes, you're absolutely correct. We, we don't know what the side effects may be. It could be affecting um, other things like the, you know, inflammation. It could be affecting um, the way uh, Alzheimer's can be treated. So those are all study projects that's ongoing looking at how vagal nerve stimulation may affect uh, inflammatory disease states like Alzheimer's or um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So those are other uh, studies I think that are ongoing now. But some we do know. Um, right now we don't have any sort of lethal effects of or, or dangerous effects of vagal nerve stimulation. But we don't know some of the either off-target benefits of that either. Go ahead. So the question was the contraindications or, or, or for, for electroceuticals. Uh, the nice thing to say is there's very few. Um, obviously, patients who are not medically able to have a device placed, uh, patients who have uh, psychiatric issues where they should not have a device placed. But realistically, there, there's very few. Um, I mean, there, there's few cases where you know, I can recall that if you stimulate, um, you discover weird things happen. Sometimes patients... Um, I remember what was happening when, when we were in fellowship. There was a, I think it was one of your patients, Mike. Um, got great pain relief with a stimulator, but every time it was turned on, I think she had to urinate or something like that. And was it? Oh, it was, it was the other one. Okay, but um, I had a patient where every time you turn it on, they, they urinate. They lost, they lost urinary function. So even though it helped with the pain, it was physiologically not possible. So that was one of the contraindications. Uh, so uh, compared to some of the other um, medical uh, options, I think electroceuticals and electricity is, is quite safe. Uh, so uh, the way I look at it is if you take a pill, it's maximally invasive because it affects every cell in your body. Uh, if, I, if I dose the spinal cord or the, the peripheral nerve or the dorsal root ganglion with, with, with electrons, essentially, uh, I'm targeting a specific pathway. I'm targeting a specific uh, set of nerves. Um, we'll go here first, then we'll go behind. So the question was um, migration of leads. That happens in both uh, spinal cord stimulation as well as DRG uh, placement as well. Uh, if placed properly uh, using the appropriate strain relief loops, uh, I think the migration rates are about the same. There are some reports of, of slightly higher complication rates uh, because these leads are less um, durable because of the, the way they're designed. Uh, but I think it's, a lot of it is technique uh, dependent uh, as well. So um, not, no major studies have shown that to be worse than spinal cord stimulation. Um, uh, lady in the back, go ahead. Excellent question. So the question was, is there any implications or studies that are, that are looking at uh, the, the, the age um, or elderly population for using electricity? Uh, not to the degree that you would want. Um, most of our patients happen to be elderly population. Uh, and I've had patients as old as in their 90s. Things that you 
take in consideration is these are electronic devices. So if somebody is not able to interact with their flip phone, you tend to not give them the most fancy device because they really just need an on and off button. Uh, the patients get you know, a little bit more frustrated in, in, in abandoned therapy. Um, but there are studies that are ongoing right now looking at how electroceuticals are interacting with elect other electroceuticals. So as the patient population advances, a lot of them have pacemakers, um, and you want to make sure that these devices are compatible. So far, we know that most of the devices are compatible, but there's a study that's, that's about to start uh, looking at that uh, as we speak. Uh, you guys went at the same time, so I'm going to go by rows. Correct. So the um, question was about regarding arthritic pain, uh, specifically to post-knee uh, replacement uh, knee pain. Uh, yes and yes. Uh, you know, with the advent of uh, genicular nerve block and genicular nerve ablation, I would still consider that some sort of delivering electricity uh, as, as ablative uh, as a little different. But uh, there are some ongoing studies in the peripheral nerve uh, stimulation world uh, looking at targeting the genicular nerves to stimulation. Uh, there's also a small study looking at DRG. Um, so some of my colleagues, and uh, me included, have used, uh, this is not an on-label use, but you could use DRG stimulation for uh, post-knee uh, uh, replacement pain as well. So that's a, that's a great area. I think there's a large unmet need, uh, not just in, in arthritis altogether, but um, knee pain. You had a question right behind you. Not, not, not on an official basis. I think you're right. The question was about CPT codes in terms of different indications. Uh, right now, uh, the known proved, approved indications for spinal cord stimulation, peripheral nerve stimulation, um, even DRG stimulation, there, there, there are codes. Sometimes these codes become less specific than what you want it to be. So as we go into the next round of ICD codes or CPT codes, um, there are individual um, uh, groups, a lot of them are driven by, by, by industry to try to get new codes, but that requires uh, studies, and a lot of times they're, they're quite costly. Dr. Lee, we have time for one more question, if I could, over here. Uh, okay, go ahead. Um, with the enthusiasm now for placement of these uh, spinal cord stimulators in young patients, uh, particularly in the 20 and 30-year-old, what are the long-term studies that show efficacy beyond any sort of um, period of time. It's really concerned when we see patients that are, you know, who are active and, you know, certainly not elderly who are receiving these. Longevity of these devices, right now, uh, the best long-term outcomes we have goes out to 24 months, uh, 24 months, two-year data. Uh, in these subsets, uh, these patients have been uh, carried out as long as, as five to ten years. 
Um, you're right. We're implanting much younger patients because of the availability and, and the versatility of these devices. But really long-term, beyond 10 years, I, I can't recall of any specific studies showing that. Uh, I think anecdotally, um, any neuromodulator has come across patients who require battery replacements. Um, and that happens more often now. Uh, within five, seven years, uh, they're required to be replaced now. So these devices have become effective till that time. Uh, but we haven't done any large-scale survey of, you know, uh, of, of that. That's a great question. All right. Thank you, Dr. Lee, for your time.